the Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 28 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to continue to talk about Article 1, Section 11 of the Michigan Constitution. Now, we've already established that folks are protected from unreasonable searches and seizures. We discussed the concept of the exclusionary rule, and we've addressed specific examples of when that may come into play, such as in a vehicle. But now I want to get into even more specifics. But before I do, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what the podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the law changes on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Our first case is People v. Nash, a 1983 Michigan Supreme Court case. Is it search and seizure if a private person provides information to the police which incriminates a defendant? The Michigan Supreme Court took up a case with a pretty interesting fact pattern. Defendant Nash lived in a mobile home trailer with her husband in 1974. She kills him and stuffs his dead body into a cardboard box, leaving it in the home. She falls behind on her rent, and when the owner of the mobile home park enters Defendant Nash's trailer, they do so because they believe that the couple had moved out. So, they proceed to empty out the house. While in the house, Mr. Ballard, who was the park owner, finds this cardboard box and with the help of his son, they move the box outside of the mobile home. The father and son notice a strong odor coming out of the box, as well as a mop bucket in the bathroom having that same odor. Mr. Ballard tells his wife, Mrs. Ballard, about the box and asks her to go to the trailer and check it out, as well as to clean the red markings on the floor left by this box. (laughs) What a swell guy, right? Sending his wife over to go check it out. When Mrs. Ballard goes to the trailer, she notices the box is slightly open because it's unsealed. When she opens it up, she sees what she believes to be the body of the victim, a dead Mr. Nash. For reasons not explained in the court opinion, instead of calling the police, she drives to the sheriff's office and reports to them what she believes to be the body of Mr. Nash. 
with no police warrant, the sheriff joins Mrs. Ballard at the home to go through the box and finds the decomposing body of Mr. Nash. Subsequent examination disclosed that the victim died of two gunshot wounds to the chest. The same day this occurred, Defendant Nash calls up Mr. and Mrs. Ballard to tell them she wished to continue renting her trailer and had left a rent check at Mr. Ballard's place of work. Defendant Nash is subsequently convicted of murdering her husband, but the real question here was, is the sheriff going through the box containing the dead body an unreasonable search and seizure? Should he have first obtained a warrant before opening the box? The Michigan Supreme Court said no. There were two key factors which the Michigan Supreme Court justices relied upon to make this decision. First, the box was outside the home, not inside the home. Second, the box was brought outside by the Ballards and was not done so by the request of the police. The Ballards legitimately took the box outside of the house because they were emptying said home in the belief that Defendant Nash and her husband had simply moved out and left the garbage behind. The court expounded that Article 1, Section 11, Search and Seizure Protections, will be implicated when the government actively infringes on a reasonable expectation of privacy. The issue for a court to decide is whether the defendant has a legitimate expectation of privacy in the place invaded or, or the area where the privacy was invaded. An expectation of privacy is legitimate if the individual has an actual subjective expectation of privacy and that actual expectation is one that society recognizes as being reasonable. Whether an expectation of privacy exists in both the subjective and objective sense is determined by scrutinizing the totality of the circumstances surrounding the alleged intrusion. The majority of justices said the defendant had no expectation of privacy under these circumstances, and here are the reasons why. The box containing the victim had been moved outside of the trailer by Mr. Ballard and his son. This action by a private person in no way involves Article 1, Section 11, which is in place to protect persons from governmental intrusion. All right, so one more time. It was a private person, Mr. and Mrs. Ballard and their son. They were the ones involved in ultimately moving the box outside and discovering it. This was not an action taken by the government. And remember, police officers are technically, they represent the government. All right, so this was, there was no governmental intrusion here because these were private people doing it. So, Again, said another way, it was the Ballards who moved the box and discovered the body, not the police who engaged in the moving of the box and the subsequent search thereof. Next, the location of the box, that being outside of the home, is in an area which is open to the public. Remember, this is a mobile home park that is open to the community, and this box was out in the open. There was no evidence provided by the defendant that the area where the box was located ever prevented visitors to that trailer or, or barred them from approaching the trailer. So again, just, you know, for the mind's eye of the listener, here's this just cardboard box sitting outside of a, uh, of a mobile home. And so there's much less expectation of privacy when a box is just outside. But also the other thing to keep in mind was that the box was made of cardboard which is certainly not a substance one would reasonably expect to be 
kept out and away from the curiously uh, uh, minded, our, our Michigan Supreme Court said. But more importantly, the box was never sealed closed. An argument could be made that because the cardboard box was unsealed, inclement weather would and could cause the box to blow open or simply deteriorate over time, thus exposing the dead body. Finally, the court held that this intrusion by a private person, so again, to be clear, not a police officer, a private person's action may lessen any reasonable expectation of privacy. Here in our case, while defendant Nash may well have entertained a subjective expectation of privacy regarding the box within the trailer, the box getting moved outside by a private person like Mr. Ballard changes the expectation of privacy to defendant Nash. And one other thing before I, I close out here is just to, to remind you, Mrs. Nash was merely renting a mobile home from the Ballards at this mobile home park. So don't think that the fact that the Ballards were in this home in any way violated her expectation of privacy. You know, it's possible it did, but if if they were there because they it was empty and, and there was, you know, essentially just garbage left over, like, for example, this box, they have the right then to go into the home and and start clearing it out for the sake of being able to rent it out to to somebody else. But whether or not the Nashes violated an expectation of privacy by Mrs. Nash. That would be a civil matter that, that ultimately Mrs. Nash would have had to have sued the, you know, the, the Ballards over. What we're talking about here is government. Article 1, Section 11 of the Michigan Constitution only pertains to the government. Therefore, under the totality of the circumstances, the Michigan Supreme Court concluded the cardboard box was not searched within the meaning of our Article 1, Section 11. Whatever expectation of privacy defendant Nash had in the contents of the box while it was inside the trailer was defeated once the box was moved outside of the trailer. The defendant's expectation of privacy was no longer objectively reasonable or legitimate. Again, let me say that one more time. The defendant's expectation of privacy was no longer objectively reasonable or legitimate by Article 1, Section 11 standards. Because remember, there are two standards here, both subjective, what does the defendant believe, as well as objective, what would a reasonable person believe. Inside the house, yes, Mrs. Nash can have a subjective expectation of privacy that the box would not be uh, tampered with by, by the police or even by a nosy neighbor. But once it's outside the house, then it becomes an objective standard. Would a reasonable person believe Mrs. Nash would have uh, an expectation of privacy from, say, a nosy neighbor? And this is all going to be fact-specific, because remember, folks, we're dealing with a cardboard box, which would eventually either blow open because of it being unsealed and or just deteriorating because that's what cardboard does in rain and snow. One other thing that I do want to uh, highlight about this case before we, we get on to our next one is this case made the ruling. If a defendant provides his or her attorney with a murder weapon, that defense attorney is legally obligated to turn the murder weapon over to the prosecution. The defense attorney cannot withhold the murder weapon under an attorney-client privilege. And because this is not part of Article 1, Section 11, I'm not really going to go into why or other aspects about this decision, but I thought that was interesting, and I thought you probably would as well.
Our next case, People v. Chapman, a 1986 Michigan Supreme Court case, we deal with a defendant who was stopped because of a cracked windshield. While the defendant was pulled over, the police officer learned that there was an outstanding warrant for the defendant's arrest and that defendant Chapman also had a suspended license. So let's so let's break that down real quick. What are we talking about? He gets stopped because he's got a cracked windshield, which is a legitimate reason to pull someone over. When the police officer does a search of, of who this person is, he's able to learn through the, the computer system, I guess, that he's got in his car that this uh, defendant had an outstanding warrant for his arrest, as well as having a suspended license, which means he shouldn't be driving because he doesn't have a valid license. So we've got all sorts of reasons why this police officer was able to stop and, and ultimately arrest defendant Chapman. But during this arrest, a pat-down of the defendant was conducted. During the pat-down, the police officer discovers a vial in the front pocket of defendant Chapman's pants. This vial turns out to be a non-transparent brown pill bottle with a white cap. Although the bottle was labeled with defendant's name and a prescription, when the officer opened up the brown pill bottle, he discovered it actually contained an assortment of codeine and Valium pills. The defendant argued that the search of the pill bottle was illegal as the purpose of a pat-down is to ensure the safety of the police officer. And the district court agreed on the grounds that the officer lacked probable cause to search this pill bottle that there were no exigent circumstances to search the pill bottle and subsequently dismiss the charges against defendant Chapman. But the prosecutor ultimately appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, and the Michigan Supremes ruled against Mr. Chapman. The court relies heavily upon a United States Supreme Court case which had very similar facts to our case at hand here. In the Michigan Supreme Court rule, sorry, the United States Supreme Court ruled in their case that when a lawful arrest occurs, it establishes the authority to perform a full search without a warrant and indeed is considered reasonable under the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment. And if you remember, we've talked about this a couple times now, our Article 1, Section 11 provision of our Michigan Constitution essentially mirrors the language of the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment. They're essentially one and the same. So you get that protection at the federal level, but we also give that protection at the state level. Now, the highest court of the land, the United States Supreme Court, they reasoned that it is a reasonable intrusion. And remember, the words there are always an unreasonable search and seizure. They reasoned that this is a reasonable intrusion under the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution because a search incident to an arrest requires no additional justification. So let me be very clear. That means if you get arrested, you are allowed to be searched by the police without a warrant because that is called a search incident to an arrest, and it requires no additional justification. You get arrested, you're going to get searched. And that's exactly what happened with Mr. Chapman. Now, the United States Supreme Court went on to emphasize that the authority to search in these types of instances is based upon the need to disarm a potential bad guy here, as well as to discover evidence. And the court went on to say there is no need for a trial judge to decide whether there was the probability in a particular arrest situation that weapons or evidence 
would in fact be found upon the person of the suspect. So said another way, the trial court doesn't have to say, okay, well, because you found something that was okay then to do that search, just in and of itself, being arrested is sufficient enough to have the probability to then do a search for weapons and evidence on the person. Ultimately, the United States Supreme Court held that the permissible scope of a search incident to an, a lawful arrest extends to containers found within the quote-unquote control area of the arrestee. And remember, things in an arrestee's pocket is going to be within the control area because very easily that guy or gal could pull a gun out of their pocket to shoot the police officer. So that's why the police officer is allowed to look within this, say, pill bottle. Now, based on the logic from the United States Supreme Court, our Michigan Supreme Court said in this particular case that there was no additional probable cause or exigent circumstances needed to justify the search of the, the vial. So for that reason, the drugs were allowed to be used as evidence against Mr. Chapman, and it was not an unreasonable search to look in the prescription pill bottle. Okay, our last case for today is People v. Collins. It's another Michigan Supreme Court case, this time from 1991. Now, this is important because it introduces a legal concept called compelling reason, which is just a fancy way of saying if there's a compelling reason, which, you know, is going to be fact-specific for each case, only then will Michigan courts require a greater use of the exclusionary rule, similar to the high standards that are required by the United States Constitution. So what am I talking about? Well, let's run through the fact pattern. A snitch, or I mean um, informant, an informant, yeah, that's the word we'll use, uh, named Earl Jones was an acquaintance of Defendant Collins. See, Defendant Collins had offered Earl Jones $500 to present false testimony in court regarding Defendant Collins' wife. There was something else going on with, with Mrs. Collins, and she was being charged, and, and Mr. Collins was willing to pay 500 bucks to Earl Jones to, to lie on the stand, thus getting Mrs. Jones, uh, excuse me, Collins out from any uh, criminal you know, uh, guilt. Now, pursuant to... This, this, this Jordan fellow snitching to the police, the officer was able to obtain a search warrant to monitor and record a conversation between Jordan and defendant Collins. As such, and, and, and it was given, it was granted, the, 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 the court did grant a search warrant to mic up Mr. Jordan, and Jordan phoned our defendant Collins here uh, from the police department, and the conversation between Jordan and Collins was rehashed and this, you know, Mr. Collins gave him the offer. I want you to lie for 500 bucks. And it, and it got the perjured uh, testimony. Well, it was, it got Mr. Collins requesting the perjured testimony for this 500 bucks. And to be clear, the entire conversation was being recorded. Additionally, Jordan and defendant Collins later sat in an automobile with Jordan being mic'd up with a hidden radio transmitter, and as you can imagine, this conversation also revealed additional information incriminating Defendant Collins. So the issue here is, does a search warrant, where only one person is privy to the knowledge that the police are listening, does that violate Article 1, Section 11's search and seizure protections because that other person doesn't know that his friend is mic'd up by the police? Does a person coming forward to the police alleging another is attempting to engage in criminal activity, 
does it require a search warrant to listen to that alleged criminal's conversation? So maybe said another way, when the bad guy doesn't know that his his buddy is is mic'd up and, and the police are listening, does a separate search warrant have to be be issued essentially twice? No, was the answer from the Michigan Supreme Court. They found that 27 states where this exact question was asked have all ruled that their constitutions do not require such a warrant. Now, they were clear to point out, our Michigan Supreme Court was, that there's nothing to prevent the Michigan legislature from adopting some sort of controls and restraints, including restrictions on the use of the evidence it's obtained. If the Michigan legislature wants to place restrictions on or to protect against arbitrary and capricious use of this type of investigative technique, the legislature certainly may do so. But the Michigan Supreme Court's point here is to say there are practical considerations which weigh heavily against a constitutional warrant requirement as this sort of investigation represents a vitally important investigative tool of law enforcement, specifically, you know, wiring up informants. This type of participant monitoring is often crucial in establishing the credibility of an informant and obtaining the probable cause. It is often necessary for the police to resort to the use of informants of dubious character, reliability, and credibility. Without tools such as participant monitoring to corroborate the disclosures of such informants, reasonable suspicions might never be developed into probable cause, lawful arrest, and just convictions. In most cases, the precondition of a warrant would require officers to have probable cause to use a device for obtaining probable cause. In situations such as drug transactions, two meetings instead of one would be required, the first to acquire probable cause, and the second to record the conversation. What the court is explaining to us is the idea that the police will have the ability to weigh that credibility of the informant based upon the accuracy and facts which come from the alleged criminal's conversation. The police, in one easy microphone conversation, can both determine the validity of the informant's allegation while at the same time getting the incriminating conversation of the defendant on a recording. The police do not have to go back a second or even a third time to record the defendant. And, as the court points out, putting an informant in danger, like during a drug transaction, is best done as few times as necessary. The court doesn't want the police to have to wire an informant once just to hear the defendant sell the drugs to have the probable cause necessary to get a second search warrant, because that then requires the same informant to go back while wearing a mic to purchase the drugs a second time. And the court here is saying one time is sufficient because the recorded conversation can always be challenged by the defendant at his trial. The defense attorney can question the police officer on why the officer believed the informant was credible or what facts did the officer rely upon when making this decision or um, what information did the police officer believe she might learn based on the recordings, you know, so forth, those, those types of questioning. The Michigan Supreme Court held that so long as a warrant sets forth with particularity the items to be seized, that warrant is going to be a valid one and thusly justifies the use of a wiretap by an informant. And I really liked this apt description by the Supreme Court. They, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially what they said is what a confidant who hears this information chooses to do with that secret, whether the confidant whispers it, records it, or broadcasts it, 
is beyond the control of the original speaker. The court rejects the idea that a wrongdoer has a constitutionally protected expectation that his confidant will be unable to repeat with accuracy the credibility of the communicated secret. Courts should not be so quick to erect constitutional barriers to relevant and probative evidence, which is also accurate and reliable. In conclusion, the Michigan Supreme Court found that the warrantless participant monitoring in this instance violated no reasonable expectation of privacy on the part of the defendant, and that there is no compelling reason to interpret our Article 1, Section 11, as affording any greater protection for this defendant than is provided for under the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment. For that reason, the defendant lost his appeal to have the wiretap evidence withheld from his trial. All right, that's going to do it for episode number 28 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. I still have a couple more podcasts to go because search and seizure is a very in-depth and complicated topic. But for now, I'll see you next time. If you want to reach out to me, you can either email me through TonySnyder.com or reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Tony Snyder. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.